be helping um, people in, in low-income households in Zimbabwe and hopefully Southern Africa, who knows, who knows, mm, um, yeah. you know, get better access, get, learn about tech literacy. Um, and I, what I'm really, really hoping happens is that the program grows big enough so that we can actually help those poor students learn how to code and then outsource their skills to, you know, here Australia, the USA or Europe and give them an income because another issue the Pathways and Padlocks conversation, where we inform, challenge and inspire students by allowing people to share their stories as humans and professionals. In today's episode, we are joined by Kundai. Kundai grew up in Zimbabwe and moved to Australia in 2015 to complete her tertiary education at the University of Sydney. Um, we were just talking off air a minute ago um, and she explained that she's finished her commerce degree at the business school at UCID. Um, and she's currently in the final year um, of her law degree at the UCID Law School as well. Um, her experiences are wide ranging to say the least. Um, I suppose the most interesting part to me about her story is that um, she's the founder and editor of The Legal Plug, um, which is a multifaceted platform that showcases the diverse experiences of people within the legal profession, um, whether it be students, lawyers, other stakeholders, for example. Um, so as part of that um, project, I suppose, um, Kundai also created and hosts the Humans of Law Land podcast, uh, which aims to capture the realistic and authentic experiences uh, of young law students uh, and young lawyers as well. Alongside her degree, Kundai has volunteered as a legal assistant at the Redfern Legal Center in 2019 and 2020, um, and was invited to give a speech uh, in the Walking in Her Shoes event um, which was hosted by diverse women, women in law. Um, she's also been engaged in entrepreneurship, having co-founded an NGO in Zimbabwe called I Am Zimbabwean. Um, we'll definitely get to all of that and more as well. Um, but for starters, um, thank you for joining the conversation, Kundai. Thank you so much for agreeing to have me on, Sid. You need to actually tell them the story of how this happened, but later. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, might, we might get to it um, throughout the conversation, Kundai. Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> thank you so much for um, giving up your time. Um, like, look, as I just mentioned, Kundai, one of the most interesting things to me um, about you um, was the fact that you created this legal platform called The Legal Plug. I mean, I remember when we initially connected on LinkedIn, like that was something which I immediately gravitated towards as well. So you, just as a bit of context, you started that in 2017. And as I mentioned, it's a digital like, online platform, um, which is essentially designed to leverage the experiences and stories of young law students and young lawyers um, who, who might be in your you know, immediate network or outside that network, for example. Um, and I was listening to another podcast, um, which was the Young Professionals Con podcast with uh, Jonathan and Chanel. Um, and you were talking about how you created that um, based on your own personal experience. So it was born out of um, quite a personal experience with, with the legal profession and trying to enter the legal profession. Um, so before I spoil everything, um, Kundai, can you just talk about how you started that podcast? Where was the inspiration? Where did that inspiration come from? Um, and what's the what's the purpose, I suppose, behind um, the legal plug? 
that's actually a very long way of asking that question, uh, but it's okay, I'll answer. Um, I think that when I first came to Australia, I, I did not know anything, obviously, because I was coming to Australia and my family was back in Zimbabwe and I was like a first, it's like I'm the first in my family, well, like, well not the first, but the second, because my older sister also went to uni uh, to go to university. And um, there was a lot I didn't know. And, mm. you know, I was the first to go into law. So there was even more I didn't know about that world. And so when I, when I came here, I struggled a lot. And I'm not even ashamed to say it. I struggled so much. Like, I, I think I was put on academic probation. I'm not going to tell you how many times, but I was put on academic probation. Mm. Um, <laughs> And um, so I decided, you know what, I am going to try and figure out how to help myself. And initially, all I did was not Google, like everyone else, you know, uh, how to be a law student in Australia, and nothing would come up. And then I would Google how to be a law student or law student tips. And then this one girl kept, kept coming up on YouTube and her name was Lily Lightcom. And she had the, this blog and this YouTube channel and she would share all her law school experiences. And I was like, I can't, I, I can't, I can't um, understand why we don't have something like this in Australia. Um, so I was like, you know, I'm going to create a platform that just isn't about me. You know, that goes beyond myself. Um, that actually caters to a lot more people and kind of helps people feel less alone in this journey you know because there might be people like me who also are struggling who also are trying to figure out the you know university process um, mm. and we could maybe help each other um, and so part of that has been you know getting people who are contributors to come on like contributors to you know give me their work and I put it up there um, some of it has been my personal writings um, and you know the books because obviously as law students most of us are readers we're very avid readers and these book reviews and then the podcast was just you know wanting to take um, this process a step further into mm. conversations because I also fell in love with podcasts and I'm an avid podcast listener and audiobook listener so I was like I'm sure there's a niche here I'm sure people will also appreciate a good podcast Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned there that what you're getting at is that there was a lack of access and lack of information regarding, you know, what it's being, what it's like being a law student. Um, and mm -hmm. I suppose from what you just said, you were looking for like practical tips and guidance from like resources online. Um, and mm -hmm. obviously that, as you mentioned, was one of the motivators and purposes for you to start this platform. So I mean, to go into that a bit in, in a bit more detail, like why was it specifically important for you to capture the authentic and realistic experiences of young professionals in the legal space, whether it be like law students or whether it be lawyers, for example? I think that one of the things that I quickly understood when I came to law school, when I started law school, was that law students are really good at keeping up facades. <laughs> and I thought that was very difficult because when you're struggling as much as I was and you know you are trying to connect on a real level because I had no one you know I was like thrown into this new country did not have anyone I'm looking for real connections I'm not looking for fake people um so but what I came to realize you know when I did eventually make friends with a lot of people were also struggling they were just really good at pretending like they knew what they were doing or acting like they knew what they were doing and so I really really wanted this platform and I wanted the podcast because I wanted us not to always feel so isolated and I think something that we don't talk about enough is the amount of people who have mental health issues in the legal profession you know people are struggling um and you know some people are taking their own lives and so have 
being able to have realistic expectations and sharing people's struggles and how they come, they, they work through that. Um, that was like something that, was, that became very, very, very um, important to me because I just didn't want people, like I just didn't want people to think like, oh, everyone had it perfect and everyone had a clear path to like, you know, success. Um, you know, like not all of us, you know, get to have that and it's okay. You know, it doesn't mean that anything is wrong with you. It doesn't mean you're not doing enough. Sometimes you might be doing a lot, sometimes maybe doing too much and it's just not mm -hmm. your path. And so that was something that was important to me when I was, you know, work, thinking through what the legal plug is. And every time I think about what I want the legal plug to be and the legacy I wanted to have on, you know, Australian law students, that's something that you know I'm passionate mm. about you know sharing those authentic and very real um, experiences mm. yeah I mean you touched on it there about what you intended the legal plug to be I mean today it is you know a multifaceted platform with you know a bunch of different ways to connect and communicate with people through um, different pieces of content um, so you know as the editor as the editor-in-chief you I suppose you are in control of you know distributing and creating those different um, content channels whether it be through podcasting blogs book reviews as you mentioned um, Instagram and even merchandising as well I saw on your on your website so yeah. Um, I just wanted to, I mean, for me, I'm quite interested in the creative process um, behind um, the legal plug. Um, so can you take us into that creative process? Um, did, did the legal plug start with those different um, content channels? Um, did you, where did you get inspiration behind those um, ways to distribute content? Um, take us inside that creative process. Okay, so I think that when I first started the legal plug, it was literally just me writing um initially i started a blog called from a zimbabwean girl um and i was a keyboard warrior and i would talk about mental health and law school and then i had medium and um and i was like why don't i create a platform because what i learned from writing a medium and writing um you know on a blog a personal blog was that i didn't want my personal experiences to be out there in that way you know it wasn't something i was comfortable with but i could create content that would be um that would be received by anyone who wanted to receive it and it didn't have to be painted through the lenses of my experiences mm -hmm. um so it was initially just a blog and you know i just have i would write you know anything that was on my mind about you know you know uh, social commentary and you know legal thoughts or um, things that I think needed to change and then as time went on I also realized that I I'm time poor you know like everyone else you know I don't have time to sit down and think about you know a legal topic every all the all the time you know and that there are other people who are equally as interested in you know this area as I am so I would scour the internet and find other people's work that I thought was interesting um, if they were like two degrees away from me I would write to them and ask them if they didn't mind if I credit them their work on my on my platform or I reached out to people and I asked them specifically to write something for the blog so I do have two people who uh, have agreed to be contributors um, and you know yeah those are that's how I 
I, I get the writing content. And then the podcast only started last year because I think I was thinking of starting a YouTube channel. And a friend of mine had actually said to me, hey, you should go and ask the, the, the Sydney University Law Society if they will let you be on their, you know, speak on their podcast or become a presenter. Then um, I was like, okay, I reached out to Sal's, the, the Footnotes podcast, and they actually snubbed me. And I was so bummed because I was like, oh my God, they snubbed me. And I was like, had ideas for days, you know? And then, but then like everything that's happened in my life, that rejection, I was like, you know what? It's just an opportunity to build something more on top of, you know, the, the legal plug. So I was like, hmm, what am I going to call it? Demons of Lawland. And I'm just going to talk about diversity. And more than that, it was also around the time that Black Lives Matter was happening. And I was just kind of coming to terms with the realization that um, a lot of people go into politics are people who went to law school. And the people in law school that I was experiencing are people who really didn't understand what was happening at a, at a deeper level. They understood, yes, there was Black Lives Matter, but the, yeah. at the end of the day, there were people like ScoMo who thought that racism does not exist in Australia. Um, so I was like, how do I combat that? And the only way I, I could think of was, look, if we're going to influence people, we need to start with the people that we can change. I don't, I think that people get obsessed sometimes with like wanting to make huge impact. They think that, you know, to make impact in the world, you have to get billions of downloads. But what I realized is that I didn't need billions of downloads. I needed my community, the people that knew me, whether by walking past me or hearing the legal plug, I mean, the Humans of Lowland podcast, I wanted those people to, to hear about, you know, Black Lives Matter or these diverse people on the podcast experiences and kind of get an appreciation of the, how much harder it is for some of us to make it in the, in the legal profession and then for them to kind of understand, hey, I am experiencing this pathway as easy because of you know, certain privileges that have been afforded to me that have nothing to do with my extracurriculars or my own merits, you know? Um, and so that was like part of it because I was like, I do have access to people who are going to be potential leaders in the country um, by virtue of going to the best school, the best law school in the country. Yeah, you can yeah. debate, you can fight yourself. <laughs> I won't fight you um, on that. I won't argue with that. <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, by virtue of that, I do have access to people who are going to be, you know, the young leaders, it, like the future leaders of this country. Mm -hmm. I need to start with who I have access to, even if it's just one person who hears the podcast or watches something and their perspective of people of color is changed by that. That was going to be enough for me. Um, so that was the podcast and then the merch the merch came because I was like look I keep forking out every month the subscription it needs to pay for itself so I was like let me figure out a way to create an income around that um, so that's what I'm trying to do with that yeah I mean like one of the interesting things you touched on there was I suppose not being carried away with you know making structural like long-term crazy impacts straight away like just listening to you speak you were quite pragmatic and realistic in that sense and you sort of come across as a person who actually thought about how they're going to make an impact and was quite strategic and meticulous in that respect like would you describe yourself as a person who you know is quite well thought out and strategic when you know you're taking on different um, projects which try to make which try to make a social impact in particular i think that i would I think it's 
the the experience I've had in the past and you mm. know my my dipping and dabbing and everything um has taught me the importance of having a longer term more calm and calculating way of thinking mm. of me changing the world um so I'll give you an example you know when I was when I first came to Australia I started, you know, two small businesses. The first one was um, this small business called Kuacha. It was like a laundry delivery service. I know this is not about impact, but no, the thinking no, is course. the same, right? Um, and so with Kuacha, what what would do is that would pick up your laundry and would return it to you within 24 hours. And, you know, back in 2016, 2017, um, in, the, in the hustle, it was hustle culture with Gary Vee and hustle, hustle, don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't <laughs> hustle grind and and you know that was my thinking it was I really wanted quick results and I failed I failed so fast and you know I got lucky because I've always believed that you know failure is not the end you know it's not final you can fail and you can bounce back but what those what that and also starting the second one which is like a meal prepping business which needed me to have like a kitchen but I didn't have a kitchen and I was cooking out of my little studio apartment uh, and I was scared when I realized that I needed a license and I was like I'm gonna get arrested <laughs> um, <laughs> Like th those experiences and just, you know, kind of understanding, um, you know, like that those things did not succeed because I did not have long term strategic thinking behind them um, mm. have taught me now that any impact or any business or any adventure that I want, you know, that I want to go into, it needs more thinking to it and that it's okay to to take my time you know there's this guy I, I think it's um uh, Earl Nightingale he has this quote that he always says in one of the motivational videos that I listen to and he says some things will take time take the time and I think we are living in such a microwave generation where we're so used to things being so instantaneous and I was the same you know when I was you know in 2015, 2016, 2017, I really wanted to, I wanted to make money and I want to make it now. But <laughs> failing so hard and also just coming to terms with the fact that things take time um, and good things, sustainable things take time. Um, that's kind of, those are the principles that I carry now, you know, when it comes to everything. Mm. Yeah, and I think, you know, patience and playing the long game, as you put it on the Young Professional podcast, is a virtue that is quite undervalued, um, you know, particularly amongst young people like you and I. Um, so mm -hmm. I definitely resonate with, you know, um, the lessons you've learned from um, those creating those two small businesses, um, you know, to ultimately creating, um, you know, that legal legal plug platform. So, yeah. I mean, we've talked about, you know, um, you know, what the platform is, the purpose and motives behind it, but um, I wanted to get into, I suppose, the flip side of that, which was, you know, some of the challenges and obstacles that you've encountered um, um, managing and creating uh, that platform. Uh, you mentioned off air that you also wanted to talk about, you know, um, the strategies used to overcome that, which I think is equally valuable. Um, so Kundai, what are some, what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced um, with that platform? And um, what are the strategies you've used to overcome those challenges? Do you know what? I think with the legal plug, I haven't had a lot of challenges. Yeah. Um, except for, I would say, like finding good quality content, you know, mm -hmm. like really finding 
articles and writers that are good that was that's been the hard thing and also finding ways to say no to people who ask to come on the podcast that I don't think are good quality for the podcast because that's mm-hmm. that's also something I, I'm sure you know as a podcast host uh, you also get people who are like I like you and they think you're great but I don't know if you're the right fit for the podcast and I think um, those two have been the biggest challenges finding good quality content and also finding you know soft ways to let people down um, without creating enemies you know um, that yeah. one's that one's been hard like especially once the one season one went off and people actually were liking it and it was getting mm. a bit more seen by people i had different people coming out of the woodworks and i was like is this how i come off when i ask people to leave the <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> i was you know what um yeah it, it, that was hard um and yeah. but you know how I overcame that by I think the with the finding content having the two people asking for people to to be stand uh, to be contributors on, on a longer basis that's an easier way to manage the quality of the of the mm. content that comes on because you know like you know how this person writes and you know um what to expect from them um and also with the you know people letting people down I think I think yeah. it takes skill man I, I'm still figuring that one out yeah I mean you mentioned there that you know once you put yourself out there once you release a few episodes in the first season that you know you weren't reaching out to people people were actually reaching out to you and people yeah. were naturally gra- gravitating to you um do you think there's I suppose like a like a more general lesson to be learned there about you know, putting yourself out, testing the waters, and ultimately, you know, if people mess with it, if people like what you're doing, they will, you know, be attracted to what you're doing. Is there something to that? Mm, I don't know, because I've had experiences where I've put, like I said, I put myself out there a lot. Um, I've had experiences where I have put myself out there, and, you know, people have not received Mm. the things. But um, I think, I think it goes, you know, I guess if it's good quality work that you're putting out and it's good conversations that people can feel like they resonate with, um, I think that people will gravitate towards that and uh, people will want to be a part of it and they want to support you and they want to, you know, reshare your work. So Mm. um, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Something to think about, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of the, um, the, the legal plug, as we mentioned, part of that um, platform is your podcast, uh, Humans of Law Land. Um, mm-hmm. And I was listening to the solo episode you did where you reflected on um, the, the clerkship application process. You mentioned that, you know, you had specific challenges as an international student um, trying mm-hmm. to get your foot in the door with a clerkship. Um, and, you know, you talked about on the Young Professional podcast about how you applied for, you know, 79, um, you know, clerkships in 2019, but um, you didn't get much back from those firms. So can you elaborate on the specifics of your, your experience and some of the challenges you face? Okay, so um, you know, for those who don't know, a clerkship is basically the equivalent of an internship for law students. And you apply for that in your penultimate year. And um, in my penultimate year, which is like 2019, 2018, I underloaded last year. Um, what actually happened was I applied to, to 79 companies. I was so excited. I was, you know, <laughs> just sending them out. 
And um, I only heard back from PwC and I had the interview and still did not make it. And I think it came down to my visa status. And, you know, getting all those rejections was very difficult because some of the companies that I applied to were not, you know, they were not like top 100. <laughs> I was like just applying. So it was very, very difficult. And also coming from UCID where almost everyone gets a clerkship or an internship. Uh, it was very, it was a hard, hard, hard pill to swallow. Um, but I think that from that experience, I just kind of had to take a step back and reassess um, what I wanted out of life. If, you know, like what, what was I applying to these jobs for? Did I really want to practice law? Who did I, you know, was this part of my bigger picture? Um, and I think, you know, having those rejections for, for someone else, they could have been life crushing, you know, and I'm not going to lie and say, you know, it didn't hurt my ego and that I wasn't, you know, bruised and a little uh, insecure after that. But I will say that it did allow me to, to think about myself in a different way and to get creative about what I really wanted out of life. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there that I guess the easy option following that experience would have been, you know, to 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 blame other people and to say, oh, it's, you know, not my problem. It's something to do with, you know, their application process, their criteria for who they hire um, and to essentially deflect responsibility in that respect. Um, you know, for me, I've definitely been guilty of that before. And I think, you know, all, all of us have to some extent resonated with that, um, with those sentiments. But mm -hmm. I mean, for you, like, although you were disappointed and disheartened initially, um, you had a different approach. You didn't really let that define, you know, how you moved going forward. Um, instead, yeah. you mentioned on a, on a previous podcast that you realized that something was missing. Um, and, you know, you, you essentially took responsibility over how you moved forward. So um, following that experience, how did that change and shape the way you interacted professionally and networked, for example? Um, how did that change your approach? That's actually a really good question. Um, I think that, you know, that process made me realize that I was not going to get a job the traditional way, you know, as well, of course I could apply, but it wasn't going to be as straightforward as it is for, you know, people who do have the visa status or who do, who do have the networks already. And, you know, I, I'm not Australian. I, I don't have family here. So I was like, what do I need to do? And I started networking um, and, re and networking more aggressively. So throughout last year, I would like talk to people on the, you know, uh, virtually I would have like three mm -hmm. virtual coffees a day, a day, I mean a yeah. week, sorry. And that was made easier by the fact that, excuse me, we are in a pandemic. So um, it, it was so easy to get like really great people and talk to them about their experiences and how they got into law. And I actually ended up getting an interview at KPM, KPMG. I got an interview um, at Sprint Law. And I think I got a third one. I just don't remember where, but you know, I would never have gotten those interviews had I not actually, you know, gone through the process of like, hey, um, can you tell me about your experience? Mm -hmm. What do you think I should do? Do you think I'm on the right path? What was your experience? And hearing other lawyers, like established lawyers, you know, some of the biggest firms, like my mentor, my mentors, uh, Nicola Nee um, and uh, Kaushi and also um, Kirti and, and hearing their experiences and mm -hmm. having them tell me like, hey, you know, this is 
how we went through it. We also struggled through this, uh, but this is what you could do. These are the pathways that you could take. Um, and also choosing, coming to terms with the fact that after hearing all of that, because like two of them are diverse women, um, and also coming, uh, coming to terms with that and accepting that, that was not a path that I wanted to commit myself to. Um, and hearing all the challenges they had, because like that's also something you have to ask yourself, like, am I cut, do I, like, does my, my personality and who I truly am, not who I'm trying to impress the world with, but who you mm. really, really are. Does that person really, really want to do what it takes to make it in this particular mm. industry? And I had to, to be honest with myself and be like, I wasn't, you know, because I think, you know, law is challenging because it's, it's very intellectual. It's very detailed. It's intellectually rigorous and you have to mm. be on your toes a lot of the times. But then there's also the politics of law, like of the, the legal community that people don't talk about, the managing of relationships. And I don't mind that challenge, but I just knew that if I wasn't doing it for something that I was truly passionate about, because you're always going to do that in any career, you need to manage your relationships, you know, you need to manage your skills, et cetera, mm. et cetera. But I... I just knew that I wasn't passionate about, about law to want to pursue that to that extent, you know, to want to do that work. Mm, yeah. And I think there's definitely value in, you know, the failure that you might encounter in a professional capacity, you know, had you have gone on to do a clerkship, you know, you might be doing something totally different at the moment. So yeah. the fact that you, you know, had a moment of self-reflection during that process to realize that, you know, hey, you know, I am a law student, but, you know, that doesn't put me in a box. I don't have to um, pursue th that particular pathway. Um, I think that's a super like mature and um, valuable uh, approach to have. So, I mean, after that- uh, Can I just add, yeah, sorry, can I just add also, like, I think I also thought about my happiness a lot. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, when you're, when we, a lot of law students you know they, they're very ambitious we're all ambitious and we want to mm. succeed and we know that the money is good the respect is good you know the status that comes with being a lawyer is there um and but sometimes you have to consider your overall well-being and i just kept thinking to myself what kind of person will i be if i pursue this opportunity like mm. the kind of person I saw myself being wasn't a very happy one um so that's definitely something I just want to add in that yeah 100 and again that's really a mature like uh, moment of self-reflection that you have so I mean following that moment of self-reflection you obviously realize that it may law may not be a path you may you want to take in the future so mm -hmm. um you were supposed shifted and pivoted um, and i suppose you lent in more to your interest in tech um would that be fair to say um, yeah 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 i definitely did um so whilst i was networking i also started networking with women that were working in tech so one of my my mentors that i've had for like a few years now mm -hmm. i met her in 2017 she's this amazing black american woman who is like a, an executive at sap and so um, one of the things that she, I remembered, she told me was that back in the day, you know, when you had to go to the library for everything, she'd self-taught herself how to, to do Python in the library every weekend in between, you know, her jobs. And I was like, oh my God, 
I can totally do the same thing. You know, I could learn all these skills and, you know, do a career pivot. So whilst I was also networking three times a week with, you know, virtually with different kinds of women, mm. I also started self-teaching how to code. Um, so I did Python on LinkedIn and then I started doing this course. This um, It's called CS50 by Harvard. And I'm also currently completing this Google Analytics certification. So uh, for, for data analysts. So I think that doing, having those conversations and hearing these women say, yes, you can totally pivot. You can pivot into tech without a BSc. Um, and you can also do it. These are the skills you need. And I think the value I found from networking and, you know, having these real honest conversations with these women was that they mm. kept telling me that you you can absolutely do it but you need to put your back into it and you really need to upskill in a in a very realistic way yeah. um so that's definitely uh, something that i hope people who are listening to this know like you're yeah. not pigeonholed into anything but if you do decide to change you need to also do your research into what you need to change uh, and mm. succeed because i don't want to just you know work in tech i want to do extremely well in tech and you mentioned a few resources there that you use to actually learn coding in Python. I mean, mm -hmm. like for those that for those people out there who might want to, um, you know, learn more about that, can you, you mentioned a couple of them there, but can you talk about, you know, how you came across those? Um, do you have to enroll in those things? Do you have to pay for those programs? Um, what's the go there? So the Google Analytics one, I started that this year and it's very yeah. new. Uh, Google says it's the equivalent of a four-year degree. This one is really good from what the reviews are saying. And this one is a collaboration between Google and Coursera and it's $39 per month on Coursera, which is nothing. You know, if you think about, about it, if you, you can literally push and have it done within four months, probably yeah. two, if you really, really are dedicated. I'm currently doing two hours every day. Um, and then there is the Harvard CS51, so CS50 Harvard course. That one is free to enroll in. Uh, it's a 12-week program, and you learn everything from SQL to Python to CNR, and it's, it's a really good course. And the guy who teaches it is very passionate, um, and the, the Facebook community for CS50 Harvard is so active, you will never feel alone. And then the, the Python, uh, introduction to Python, I encourage anyone who is interested in starting to self-teach coding to do that one, the one on LinkedIn, because it's mm -hmm. free and also because it's so basic and it takes you through step by step. And um, it, I think doing that gave me, like it really encouraged me to like, you know, pursue harder and harder things. Um, it, how I came about knowing about, you know, the, the CS50 Harvard one, and this other pro bootcamp I did called uh, Get Into Tech by Inco was um, one of the ladies I was talking to, but she's a different one. She works at Salesforce. Um, and I met her at a, she was on a panel for this thing called She, she, she Loves Data. It's like this thing for women. Sorry, Sid, you're not invited. <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I approached it to the virtual event. So I approached her after and I was like, hey, I listened to you talk about your experience. Could you tell me a bit more about, you know, how, how you think I can navigate myself and get into tech? And she was like, listen, there's this thing called get into tech, sign up for that. And then she also told me about CS50 by Harvard. And she was like, if you finish this thing, you know, you definitely are meant to work in tech. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. So I got into the get into tech bootcamp and they taught me HTML and CSS. That's basically like the language 
languages you need to learn how to web develop but i was like look i don't love web web development because it's very very technical but data analytics sounds more like me from you know what um they were teaching us and the visualization and everything else yeah i think those are some really cool like practical and pragmatic tools and resources um you know that you've shared and i think are really valuable for other students out there who might be interested in that as well i mean um you applied those some of those skills and coding and python skills um, in a couple of challenges and series one of which was the intervarsity tech literacy series i believe mm -hmm. um, where you were essentially responsible for designing um, a solution to address a real world problem um, mm -hmm. and i mean for you you decided to tackle a problem um, in the classroom with teachers specifically yeah. Um, I thought that was a really cool like solution that you that you came up with. Um, for those yeah. that aren't aware of what you, exactly you did, can you tell us about um, what that series was and what the challenge you um, undertook? So um, the InterVarsity Tech Literacy Program was this uh, boot. It's a sort of boot camp that was yeah. offered by uh, Network of Women on campus, like on on uni, uh, yeah. in collaboration with uh, UNSW and a bunch of other unis as well. And so we would get taught how to build chatbots, how to develop apps, how to uh, you know how to use a lot of Microsoft Azure, and how to data visualize and you know all this the kind of skills you need to work in analytics or data science um, and then at the end of it we uh, we had a challenge and the challenge was basically to solve a real life problem so my team and i decided that we were going to build um, a, a chatbot that would assist teachers in responding to to students you know especially because of the pandemic and you know having to teach virtually teachers can't respond to students as uh, fast enough but if you have a chatbot that knows how to respond to the students, then that reduces the amount of stress on the teacher, especially during this time. And so I developed actually I, I, I was I'm the one who created the bots that we ended up presenting um, using Microsoft uh, Azure and that was so cool we actually won the competition and we won an internship at IAG, uh, which is really dope. Yeah, I mean, that's as someone who doesn't know the first thing about tech or programming or coding. Um, I hope I'm getting those terms right. Um, yeah. yeah, it's super interesting to see how you've actually pivoted and, you know, learned a new skill, um, which is totally unrelated to what you're studying previously at UCID. Um, yeah. I think that's being flexible and um, being, yeah, being very flexible in your approach to learning is very important. I mean, speaking of being flexible, um, obviously, like you're studying law, you have some interest in law, but not something you want to pursue wholeheartedly. Just as a, as a, I suppose, a random question, like is, is, do you see yourself pursuing opportunities where you combine like law and tech? Do, is that something that exists now? Is that something that interests you or not really, not at all? You know, um, Sprint Law, the, the company that I interviewed for last year, mm -hmm. um, they are a tech, a tech uh, law firm right. and it was great researching them to do the interview and then talking to the people and really learning about what they did in practice and mm. it's still law <laughs> <laughs> and I think that I I know myself and I, I know for a fact that um, law itself is not for me <laughs> and mm. I think if you're gonna need if I'm gonna work if 
you know, Steve Jobs has this quote that he said, it was like, you're going to spend a lot of time at work. You need to make sure you're doing something that you love. And I know for a fact that I don't love law like that. You know, I love the people in law. And that's why, you know, I do the legal plug and I do the podcast because I really, really want people in law to, to have a, a better experience. I think yeah. that's important. I think that is a, a, a legacy worth leaving. But I'm not so crazy about the practice of law and you know tech tech law is still the practice of law um yeah. with tech sprinkled especially where tech law is at the moment it's not yet in a place where uh, a lot of it is tech itself mm. a lot of it is still law with tech aspects you know what yeah. i mean yeah of course and that's a really cool insight as well into yeah. um like a real life trend in in the, the professional uh, in a professional context um Kunda, i wanted to tra- transition a little bit um mm-hmm. to another experience that you had which was uh, an event hosted by diverse women in law where you did a speech mm-hmm. uh, for the walking in her shoes uh, event um you've already touched on um you know some of the challenges you faced as a like a foreign international student um mm-hmm. and from my understanding you echoed some of those experiences in that speech um, you also talked about um, like essentially your story as a migrant woman from Zimbabwe um, and how your father escaped civil war by migrating from Mozambique to Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also talked about how, you know, people from your, your particular background and ethnicity are not necessarily reflected in positions of influence and power. So mm-hmm. um, just as that was just sort of a brief introduction to that speech for those who didn't hear it. Um, but can you go into the specifics about, you know, some of the messages you are getting across in that speech? Um, so the diverse women of law, yeah you know, is is this organization that basically helps uh, young women and young professional women in law in the in law who are from diverse backgrounds, and um, also introduces them to diverse older women who are in the profession through this mentorship program that I was a part of, and I got so lucky to be selected to be a part of. Um, And then the, you know, walking of shoes experience, uh, what event was um, just a spinoff of of what they do. And um, they wanted me to kind of share my my personal story and you know like you rightly said part of that is that you know my dad you know I my dad you know being an immigrant man from who from Mozambique who came to Zimbabwe and then myself coming here to Australia to look for you know better opportunities Um, and I think the main thing that I was wanting them to know when I was telling them that story was that um, was that I'm human you know and I think that when we think, when we go through these hiring processes or we go through law, there's this dehumanizing that you kind of have to do of yourself. I don't know if you you can relate to that. Like you kind of have to become your CV. Uh, you need to become, you know, uh, th- these big words that they use, ambitious, hardworking, talented, you're not yourself. And I think that it was important for me to share that, you know, I'm a I'm a human being and I've got a history. I've got people who care for me and there's a story behind who I am. Um, and that, you know, and that's part of that story is, is that, you know, I come from a line of people that have always pursued bigger and better things. Um, and that is in my DNA, I can't help myself. I'm always mm-hmm. gonna look for better opportunities. Um, but also importantly that, 
there aren't enough women who look like me in this space and that there needs to be work done to do that and that the work that diverse in law is doing to help with that process is so important so those are like the main things that we were talking about I don't know yeah. if I answered your question correctly no no of course and yeah it reminds me of something you said a while back about um how you how students are good at creating facades and you put on pretenses to to fit into a particular like persona I guess so um I guess it's refreshing to hear about how you were able to communicate like a true and authentic you know uh, reflection of yourself in that sphere and I get the sense that you know that's something that has permeated throughout your experiences um, whether it be through um uh, the legal plug or the humans of land law um podcast as well I mean yeah just, I, yeah go on. Also, I just want to add that I you know my authenticity my authenticity and my ability to just be myself I think that is something we all should be aiming for <laughs> I know yeah, that you know we hard, live hey. in a it's it's it is hard I think I know that it's hard for a lot of people but the one thing that I've come to realize is that people receive me so much better when I am myself um and you know people appreciate that in work environments like they appreciate that I am myself um and that you don't have to play up any character to actually succeed you can be yourself of, of course within reason but um yeah. <laughs> you can be yourself and still succeed you don't need to be anyone else but yourself yeah. to succeed you know 100 and I think that's really good advice for anyone out there who um is you know like yourself um, a couple of years back who is looking for you know professional opportunities particularly in the legal space for example yeah. but I guess you can apply that to you know almost any professional opportunity yeah. yeah so I mean you touched on the diverse women in law and some of the opportunities um, available to women um, mm -hmm. I just wanted to go into that a bit more in a bit more detail for uh, female law students out there who might not know what that is um, mm -hmm. You mentioned that you've come across a couple of mentors. One of them was um, Kaushi, who's a lawyer at Minta Ellison. So um, yes. for those who aren't aware of um, diverse women in law, um, what are some of the opportunities and benefits of engaging with, uh, with that organization? So the benefits of engaging with diverse women in law is obviously the network of law, female lawyers mm -hmm. who sometimes will look like you, who want to help you. Um, and I think that is like the biggest benefit because law can feel very isolating especially if you're a woman of color you know um it can feel very very lonely and so having a community of women who look like you or different as well who understand what it means to be an outsider um encourage you and see more of see you as more as what you can become that is invaluable for anyone and um i believe in mentorship because of how it's impacted my life and also because of what Michelle Obama says you know that we can't become anything we can't see and I really believe that especially for you know coming from Zimbabwe where I was surrounded by people who looked like me and constantly told how amazing I was coming into a white space where I don't look like anyone and I have to find people who believe in me um I can tell you the value of mentorship here in the western society as a woman of color is just 
astronomical, you definitely need um, that community. Um, so there's definitely that, the network. Um, then there's also the opportunities to, to just, they have workshops, you know, for interviews. Uh, they have workshops for, um, for anything you can think of, you know, at the end of the day. So I definitely like cover, cover, cover writing, um, cover letter writing and, you know, CV writing and the practical things as well as, you know, the network and the community of it all. Um, I think mm. that is something that is very, very important for young women, um, particularly young women of color who don't often have those people and that community encouraging them, telling them how great they can be. Um, I think I can only appreciate the value of this because I came from a context where I was always told that I was never... I was never not told how great I could become. You know, I was growing up in Zimbabwe, I was constantly told, you can be great, you can go far. You know, then I came here and then the conversation was not the same. You know, I had people saying some crazy things like, are you sure you wanna work at that firm? And, you know, it, it's very underhanded, but I can imagine going through that as someone who's never exper experienced what I have experienced, you know, in, in Zimbabwe, that's my normal. So um, I don't know if that makes sense to you at yeah, all. Yeah, of course. And I mean, yeah, like that is your, like your particular experience. And mm -hmm. um, it's cool to see how, like, despite your quite unique experience, um, you know, this diverse women in law um, platform, you know, has, you know, helped you out, you know, um, you know significantly. And in, and it looks like from the outside looking in that, you know, um, people who come from diverse backgrounds, um, you know, that is a um, that is an organization which really embraces that and really, really yeah. seeks to reflect that as well. Um, so yeah. I really appreciate you going into um, the details of that organization. And um, I'll definitely leave a link to that um, below um, for those who are interested, um, particularly um, female law students. Um, I want to pivot again, if I may, um, to one of the things I mentioned at the top of the episode, which was that uh, you co-founded a NGO um, called I Am Zimbabwean, um, mm -hmm. which you started back in Zimbabwe. Is, is that correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, the story with, the, with I Am Zimbabwean is that back in 2013, I attended the Global Young Leaders Conference in, in America. I was selected to go. Um, and it was like basically a, a model United Nations simulation. And we participated in the simulation at the actual UN headquarters in New York. And um, it was a great experience. I'm not even going to lie. And we also worked in, in Washington, DC. It was a really cool experience. But one of the things that came out of that was that I met so many incredible young people. Um, I met, you know, young people who at 16 were going to summer school at Oxford and Cambridge. I met, you know, very competitive, very bright young people who were doing exceptional things in their countries. And so I came back to Zimbabwe and I was like, hey, I want to make a difference in the world. And, um, and how am I going to do this? How am I going to make a difference in the world? And I looked around and I was like, my, um, I was like to my friend, what are we going to do? And initially, we just started this campaign where we would write, you know, ask people to tell us what they think uh, about Zim being Zimbabwean and what their feelings around that were. And it was like a, a 
positive propaganda conversation and you know people would write um being zimbabwean is i wish i had the pictures for you that <laughs> being zimbabwean is hot to so being zimbabwean means that i am intelligent or whatever and it was really cool and we did it in our little community in our little church community and i was so happy that i did that and i had fun doing that and then after that we did um you know, a pen and pencil drive. And this was like collecting pens and pencils from our schools. My friend went to a different school. I went to different, I went to an all girls school. So we collected pens and pencils from my school and he collected from his school. And then we would uh, repackage them into like a, an exam set, like a pen and pencil sharpener, whatever we could get, and then redistribute them in these rural areas. Cause like, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know about you, but I've got a whole pencil case with 20 billion pens that I don't use. And I just knew, <laughs> I was like, that's like wasteful. And like, we have kids, you know, in rural areas who don't, who have one pen for like the whole year. So imagine if we could help them get, improve their education experience you uh by giving them what they need to actually get through it and so that was our next one and we collaborated with a church one of my friend's uncle is a is a pastor at a catholic church and they gave us their van and they drove us to this rural area uh this dusty rural area to the school called mauseko high school and would give the kids the pens and pencils they would be so excited they'd be none the wiser that these were secondhand pens but who cares and then um and then uh, i think at the end of 2019 beginning of 2020 um one of uh, my male mentors was here in Australia, um, he actually donated to me like eight laptops uh, from, and he, you know how companies have old laptops that they don't use anymore? Right. Like yeah. that they yeah. stopped using. And so as long as it has, look, listen, as long as that Microsoft Word, we will use it and teach children how to type. So what I started to realize is that there's so much emphasis at the moment in like low income countries to teach children how to code, but you can't teach children who don't even understand how to type or read in English anything until you teach them how to read and how to type like purity, right? So that's what we started going to do. Um, and that was going to be our project for 2020, but obviously COVID hit and then that kind of pushed things back for us. Um, yeah. But, you know, COVID hitting kind of emphasized for me why tech, tech literacy was so important. You know, we have the whole world moving into the uh, fourth industrial revolution and African countries are still behind. And so my mission going forward is obviously helping um, people in, in low income households in Zimbabwe and hopefully Southern Africa, who knows, who knows, mm, yeah. um, you know, get better access, get, learn about tech literacy. Um, and I, what I'm really, really hoping happens is that the program grows big enough so that we can actually help those poor students learn how to code and then outsource their skills to, you know, here Australia, the USA or Europe and give them an income. Because another mm. issue that we're having right now in the, in the, in the, communities where we go and we teach is that a lot of the students end up going into prostitution or you know selling their bodies so that they can make money and they're not making a lot of money they're making like five dollars but what if we could teach them a skill for life that they're gonna because tech skills are going to be 
um, in much higher demand by 2025. I think 50, 59% of the employees, uh, well, this is according to Google, are gonna need to up to, to reskill by 2025. So yeah. imagine if they already have the skills that are being needed. Um, imagine the access to, to, to employment they could have beyond their current living spaces. And that is something I'm passionate about. That is, um, even if I help just 10 students get stop, you know, stop them from that. I know that helping just 10 people means they have to helping two or more people. And that's impact to me. It's not, you know, yes, it will eventually, hopefully it get, it becomes large scale, but I, more than anything, I think that it, there's also value in helping where you can. It's not just about helping the biggest and the best. Sometimes it's helping in a good way that is sustainable mm. and doesn't harm people, you know? Yeah. And I mean, from what you've just mentioned there, it's and from what is evident from this conversation, it's clear that you are a very uh, creative, uh, entrepreneurial person who likes problem solving. Um, that's sort of the vibe that I'm getting. Um, and that's really clear from, you know, all the different experiences that you've had. Um, and I suppose a part of being a part of that is, you know, being innovative and flexible. So from what you've just said, like, it looks like, um, I suppose the initiatives and purpose of um, that NGO has changed a little bit um, over the years. Um, and, you know, you're now working in, you know, tech literacy and um, promoting that in these African communities, um, which you might not have envisioned when you initially co-founded it. Um, is that something that, is there something to that in being an entrepreneur like yourself, being flexible and adaptable and being comfortable with the fact that in, you know, five, 10, 15 years later, you might be doing something you know, completely different, which you might not have initially envisaged? Yeah, yeah. I think that it's a delicate balance, right? Because mm -hmm. I think it, on one hand, you want to create a legacy that is, and, and you know, we know, as, I don't know, as a law student, you know that it needs to be, legacies are built on tradition and steadfastness right. of certain values um, but also innovation and changing and the way the world is moving requires that you have a certain level of flexibility mm. and I think that it's a delicate balance it's a dance between you know what are my values what are my core values that don't change no matter what I'm doing no matter how the project changes. what are the core values of the organization or whatever project I'm working on that are not changing Mm, um throughout right. this whole process you know so I think how I tackled that was that I, I identified what my core values are and what I wanted to to stand for no matter what and those things haven't changed but mm. how I make the impact how I grow the organizations how I help people that will change as needed so the core value of i'm zimbabwean is helping people be better educated and make an impact on people's lives without harming them because i think a lot of the what i kept um, observing was how um, people would go into communities and then they would get out they, they would go and have their photo op and then leave and that's a lot of what happens with uh, with charity tourism i don't know if you've seen it um, where you know people go into a community you take your photos, you do your good work, and then you, you know, you ship out. But that's not how change works. It's not how you help people. You help people by helping them in a stable, consistent way. Um, and so my values for I'm Zimbabwean are definitely 
creating change that is stable and sustainable mm. and doesn't harm people emotionally or physically you know because like a lot of there's a lot of emotional harm that go that happens when you go in do your photo up and get out you know mm, yeah. um so that's that's definitely something that i'm i i'm i'm really cognizant of when i think of i'm zimbabwean and the work i do uh, and my own personal journey and like how i move through the world 100 and you know it is quite it is to be honest with you it is very inspiring to hear about how you're inspiring to hear about your passion for you know impacting these communities and you know making you know long-term impact because you know teaching someone uh, sorry increasing someone's uh, tech literacy is not just impacting them it's going to impact you know their generations to come which is um yeah as i said super inspiring to see some of the work that you're doing in these uh, african communities I suppose on the flip side of that, there will be you know no shortage of challenges and obstacles to like overcome with that. You already mentioned about uh, the impacts of the pandemic on the operations um, of I am Zimbabwean, specifically like the tech literacy program. Um, has that been the biggest challenge you've faced um, with that NGO, or has there been other challenges that you've had to overcome? And how did you oh overcome them? There are like so many challenges. <laughs> I think that I'm I'm a I'm a glass for when it comes to some things, I'm a very glass half full person. So yeah. it's very rare to hear me complain about a challenge because it seems to always fix itself because I come up with like some creative way of fixing mm. it. Um, but we definitely are underfunded. And I think part of we my friend and I did that, my co-founder and I, we did that very intentionally because we were like, look. We want to change the world, but we also understand that the moment we start taking money from people, uh, we are going to not really know what our values are and what we're doing this for. So we've been running a lot on donations and that's that has its challenges because you're basically running a business without money, right? You're basically mm -hmm. running an organization without money. And so we're relying on the church to drive us around. And my co-founder would, you know, he would drive, you know, the volunteers from, um, he goes to the University of Zimbabwe in Harare, which is, you know, one of the best universities in the country and he would drive you know the volunteers from there to wherever we were going to teach the children and that's a cost for him as well so really um the funding and figuring out what our values are you know learning by trial and error that this doesn't work this works for us that's been the hardest part and also there's um getting a steady stream of volunteers that's also been hard but mm. for us we've accepted that these last couple of years have been a testing ground for us um and i think i mentioned this to you before we got on that you know going forward you know i'm definitely wanting to grow these programs into bigger uh projects because of the impact of COVID and what I've learned from that and that we're definitely going to start taking funding for that and that's obviously how we're going to combat the rest of the issues um with that yeah does I mean, that make touched, sense yeah of course I mean you touched on there about you know you were basically running an NGO an organization without money <laughs> I mean despite the fact that it is a like a non-government organization um I just wanted to sort of generalize the, that a bit more. Um, mm -hmm. You know, is there a understanding that, I mean, from your experience, is there an understanding that you need to have, you know, like thousands of dollars to start a business or an NGO, or you need to have, you know, an army of people, um, you know, who are ready to volunteer or work for you initially? Um, was that 
I mean, I know that wasn't your experience, but mm-hmm. um, do you think that's a misconception that people have that there are so many barriers to entry when doing starting an NGO or even a private business, for example? Do you know what? Mm. In Zimbabwe, there's great barriers to entry when starting a business or an organization because there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape and so much is going on, you know, because by virtue of being a low income country and, you know, we know what the political state of Zimbabwe is right now. So, which makes it difficult to do that. But I would say in Australia, you have no excuse. Like (laughs) if you want to start a company in Australia, it literally takes a week. And, um, that's like the beauty of Australia like I love Australia because of that like I don't see myself living anywhere else like um, but Australia because of that because of how much ease there is when it comes to registering a business you know getting access to information getting access to volunteers there's there's always someone who's gonna die for your cause you know in Australia and I think that's something that's beautiful so if you want to start something if you want to start an organization and you're based in Australia you don't need a lot of money you probably need like five hundred dollars um, but that's also because I'm a bootstrapper, you know, like, <laughs> I know, <laughs> you know, I'm the kind of person who will make something out of air, but um, it shouldn't, if you do have more money, don't be ashamed, go for it. Um, but you never really need like thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, but it also depends on the, that being said, it depends on the type of business you want to start. Right. You know, some businesses will cost more than others. Um you know, but if it's just a side hustle or, you know, uh, an e-commerce business, e-commerce business, you literally could start it with $100 and you would be fine. Right. And I mean, like something that came to our mind, which I wanted to get your opinion and perspective on was, I suppose, um, a follow on from that is the idea of risk. And, you know, you you compared, um, you know, starting a business or an organization um, in Australia and Zimbabwe and the differences. Like, I'm curious, do you think like um, in Australia, there's like in our environment, for example, there's like lower risk to starting a business in comparison to starting one in Zimbabwe, for example? You know, I'm gonna, uh, this is going to be a little uh, different what you're probably expecting. But in Zimbabwe, yeah. almost everyone has a side hustle because they, right. the, former, the former employment systems don't work. So you're not making enough from your main job. So a lot of people right. actually end up having like lots of side hustles. You know, they either have their banker, but they also sell tomatoes. You know, mm. they're a banker, but they sell toothpaste. They're a banker. And, and it's, it's a really crazy way of thinking, but only Africans will understand. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's tragic, but I think that's why you, if you ever meet an African, you know, here in the diaspora, the, the kind of people that are very entrepreneurial, they will probably have lots of things going for them and mm. they're hustlers. You know, yes, they might have formal employment, but they're always hustling on something. Um, so, you know, back to your question though about risk. Um, I would say that there's less risk here, definitely, because a lot of times when you're starting a business in the Western context, you you don't, you don't have a lot to lose, you know, in the sense yeah. that, you know, you can, there's always another opportunity around the corner. Whereas in Africa, things are hard, you know, like mm. um, things are very hard for people in, in Africa, in Africa, in Zimbabwe, you know, Definitely. things are hard. 
Yeah, I definitely didn't didn't know that, you know, it seems like in Zimbabwe culture, like they're very industrious, bootstrapping type people and very entrepreneurial from from what I gather. Is that would that be fair to say? You have to because the economy Mm. is so bad, like so everyone ends up hustling, you know, like everyone ends up Mm. creating other sources of income that are not. That's why the the corruption is so high, right? Because your main Mm. job is not actually paying you what it's supposed to. You Mm. it's not paying you enough for to sustain you. So you end up either being corrupt or having twenty thousand, you know, side projects and and things like that. Yeah, I guess. I guess then the difference would be that there's that degree of necessity in in Zimbabwe yes. rather than here, where there's always like a fallback option. Um, yeah. And I guess if it's a matter of necessity, whether it's you have food on your table or not, you you you're quite motivated to go out there and do something for yourself um, yeah. and to be more entrepreneurial. So again, yeah. yeah, I think that's a really cool comparison that you've brought in and. Um, it's obviously clear that you've brought in those cultural aspects um, and applied those in, you know, in Australia and to, to your life in Australia, which is really cool to see as well, Kundai. Um, I am mindful of the time, though, which is exceeded an hour. Um, and I don't want to keep you too long because I'm sure you have 10,000 other things to do. Um, so, I mean, Kundai, we pretty much touched all bases. It's like, this is probably one of the longest episodes I've done. Um, and it feels like we haven't gone over 45 minutes. So, I mean, I just want to thank you for your time, Kundai. Um, and before we head out of here, was there anything that, was there any final message that you wanted to get across to, you know, potentially young people out there who might be listening? Um, you might have already mentioned it um, on this episode previously, but um, was there any final message that you really wanted to get across, um, particularly to those young people out there? I think that the main message that I always have for young people and, you know, my peers is always, listen, I think at the end of the day, life is short. And if COVID mm. stern us anything, it's a life is short and you need to make sure you're doing something that you love. Um, especially if you're living in a country like Australia, you don't need to, to do what your mom says you need to do. Like if you are passionate about, you know, running your own business or passionate about podcasts, you can totally make a lot of money from that and live comfortably. Actually not even just comfortably, you can live well off of that. So um yeah, like, I think that's my main message to people, like, you know, go after what you want, like, life is short, create your own path, don't let anyone or anything stand in your way. Yeah, I mean, on that note, that pretty much caps off our interview, Kundai, I just want to say thank you again for being really open and transparent. Um, you know, for me personally, it's very refreshing and inspiring to see someone who, you know, takes responsibility for their own future, um, who doesn't let setback and failures define how they move forward. Um, and I think that's a consistent theme that um, that I personally get throughout this interview. And I think a lot of other people will get a similar message. Um, but obviously, they might interpret the interview in different ways and find different um, um, like principles or lessons, values that you've touched on as well, which I think um, is really um, is really beneficial and is really uh, important to why I created this platform, which is you know, to capture, you know, your, um, your diverse experiences, and then to reflect those um, in a very honest and um, authentic way. Um, so on that note, uh, Kundai, thank you so much again. Um, I will leave all the links to um, the Humans of uh, Lawland podcast and the legal plug down below, um, as well as uh, I Am Zimbabwean, um, the NGO, uh, which you talked about. 
Um, and I'll also leave your LinkedIn. Are you happy for me to leave your LinkedIn in the, in the comments below? So if anyone yes, wants to reach out to you, they can. Yeah, awesome. I'm happy to, for people to reach out. Perfect, Kundai. Um, again, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate that.